I'm Selma Qureshi. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neuroscience Research Podcast. It's October 22nd, 2020, and we'll be talking shop in a minute with Nicola, Nicola Grissom. It's Nicola, right? I keep wanting to say Nicola. Um, but first, I want to take a minute to make some exciting announcements. Um, first, you may have noticed, some of you out there, that our conversations are now on our brand new UTSA Neuroscience YouTube channel. Please check us out there and subscribe. We've got lots of new content planned and underway, which brings me to item number two. So on November 12th, we're hosting our 12th annual research symposium, which this year for the first time ever will be live streamed to our YouTube channel in its entirety and also available to the public to join as a WebEx event. So in the past, we've only recorded just the 45 minute panel discussion for you guys and posted to our audio podcast. Um, but this year you'll have two ways to experience the whole thing from start to finish, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Central Time. Um, so links to connect to either the live stream on YouTube or the WebEx event will be available shortly on our website, on the YouTube channel and also on Twitter. So these, um, Symposia are, are really special events for us. For each of the last 12 years, we've highlighted the research area of one of our brilliant young faculty by having them bring in the vanguard of their field for an immersive day of research talks. So this year, Lindsay McPherson, McPherson, sorry, who is with us today. Hi, Lindsay. Hi. Um, she has the honor and she's put together a symposium called A Gut Feeling, Chemosensory Signaling from the Tongue and Gut to the Brain. So Lindsay, can you tell us what you got planned? Sure, um, I'm really excited about this uh, symposium coming up soon. I've just recently talked to our panelists and they're also very excited to join in. So we're hoping to reach out um, to have a broader reach than we usually do by having this all online. And so our, our panelists um, will include myself talking a little bit about taste and gut chemosensation and connectivity um, using a new um, GRASP technique that I've been developing. Um, and we will also hear from Alan Spector, Diego Bohorquez, Yvonne de Araujo, Araujo excuse me, uh, Suzanne Appleyard, and Lindsay Shear. And they are all talking um, a little bit about uh, chemosensation from the tongue and gut to the brain um, and all of the fantastic and interesting new things that are coming out um, in this field. Um, so I hope you all can join us. Hey, thanks. Okay, so on to the show, most important business at hand. So today we're talking with Nicola Grissom, who is assistant professor in the Department of Psychology, and she's also part of the NeuroPRISM Center for Computational Psychiatry um, at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Hi, Nicola. Hello. I don't don't know why I waved. I mean, uh, why not? <laughs> So broadly, Nicola's research uses mouse models and computational psychiatry approaches to understand motivation, executive function, and how diverse brains implement different cognitive strategies and goal-directed behaviors. Um, her work examines the impact of sex on executive function, and she has just launched a big funded program, an NIMH-funded program, to define how sex interacts with genetic factors and brain circuitry to produce male vulnerability in a mouse model of autism. So in the gallery today, we've got Matt Wannett, fellow motivation person. Hi, Matt. Howdy. Um, and Lindsay, we've already heard from. Hi, Lindsay. Hi. <laughs> and of course, MVP Charlie Wilson, to whom I wish the happiest of happy birthdays today. A lot going on today. Happy birthday. So, um, so I think, I think I've, I've talked way too much. And I want to allow you, Nicola, to take the floor. Um, I think it's worth starting by saying something about how cognitive researchers have historically approached or not approached um, the matter of sex and studying behavior um, and decision making and where we are now on that front in terms of framing sex and performance through the lens of, of, of computational psychiatry uh, in humans and in in model systems, in, in mouse models. So can you say something about that? Uh, for sure. The question is, can I stop saying something about it? Um, so the question of how uh, scientists, people have approached uh, sex, sex and gender really, although obviously in animal models, we're only, only gonna be able to really get at sex, um, has sort of like two parts and I'm hoping that we can sort of usher in a third part. So part one is uh, ignore it, right? Like, so 
assume that it's, uh, you know, at best uh, a source of variability, um, this idea that Becca Shansky has been instrumental in sort of putting forward or, or highlighting for us this sort of like assumption that, um, that you know, female uh, animals, girls and women and people are, you know, males, but with some extra hormones basically that makes them uh, different and more variable. And so we don't really need to worry about that special case that, you know, femaleness is a special case of being male. Uh, and we can just sort of establish, you know, the ground truth of biology and then, and then, uh, and then worry about these little details later. So it's a relatively pejorative take, but that kind of describes where we, where we've been at, you know, um, and that includes like where I was at as a graduate student, you know, trying to understand one uh, manipulation while, while seemingly not worrying about a different one, which would be sex. So, okay, so then flash forward to, to where we're at now. So um, there's been an undercurrent of people who have been interested in, in sex difference, or sex differences research for a while, um, trying to highlight that sex itself is a biological variable and that it is not, uh, especially not sufficient to say that, you know, that a female is a special case of a male, uh, purely from a sort of mammalian developmental standpoint, if anything, a male is a special case of a female, given that, you know, the, the sort of primary developmental program of an embryo is female and then additional uh, masculinization steps primarily occur to cause uh, a male to develop, uh, which is itself oversimplified and over binary. Um, but, uh, you know, this people highlighting that, for instance, uh, there are more differences between across males and females than just, you know, gonadal sex hormones um, and people highlighting this, this need to understand how all these factors might cause differences um, that are important uh, has led to the sort of push for like, okay, let, well, let's start including um, you know, sex is a biological variable, or at least including males and females in approximately equal distribution, equal number um, in experiments. And this has still led to, you know, some pushback and some, you know, grumblings, uh, including like when I go and give talks occasionally, people being like, well, now I have to double my N, uh, you know, not necessarily, you know, you could just use the same N, but make sure that they're equally distributed across males and females. Um, but the sort of concern that you're then going to be studying two different uh, mechanisms at whatever level that you're trying to discover, like whatever's going on in the males and whatever's going on in the females, that you're trying to discover two things at once. And so that's, I think, the latent assumption that is operating, even if you're not controlling for hormones. And so there's a third wave that I've been thinking about, but I haven't really articulated. I've been thinking about trying to write something about this, but I am only like, I have a couple like very rough drafts in my documents, but nothing that's quite shaped up, which is that, but a third wave that I'd be hopeful for, which some of the sex differences researchers have commented on, but which is really challenging, which is that we can't treat these as binaries, right? Um, that if we go into justifying sex as a biological variable by saying that, you know, it's probably going to be so different between males and females. That assumes that the primary state of sex differences is that there's a, a mean for typical males and a mean for typical females, and there's very little overlap. Uh, but in fact, for most things that we really care about um, at, in sex differences, most of what exists is overlap and there might be a mean difference, but you cannot tell based on looking at this dependent variable, whatever it is, whether or not you're looking at a male or female. Um, and that goes all the way from cognitive variables out to even some really fundamental biological variables that you think you you think would be correlated. Um, even sometimes in humans, when it comes to what we consider typical gonadal sex, sex hormones, there can be quite a bit of variability where you would you could make a significant number of mistakes if you just looked at. Uh, you know, those hormone levels and decided whether or not you were dealing with male or female category. And so something that I am myself working through how to accomplish in a statistical and analytical way is to try to describe sex differences without uh, reifying any binaries. That is, 
we know that none of these mechanisms are binary. We know that there's no, no place you can point to in the brain, especially of humans and be like, these, this is always going to be different in a reliable way. This is, this is the male version of this. And this is a female version of this. Um, and so we have to be prepared to accommodate the fact that when we're thinking about this as a variable, that it's a source of variability, but it is not necessarily uh, a unidirectional source of variability, that there's sex is a spectrum and it's a spectrum in multiple different dimensions, uh, which is the, the math, the math that I've been speaking in, steeping in now for a few years, starting to leak through into how I think about sex differences or sex similarities or the intersection between the two. Um, that, that's it in a nutshell, basically, that like, I am concerned sometimes by the focus of sex difference researchers in trying to overemphasize the differences, even if you have identified a big difference in one measure. Um, you know, I wanna try to discover things about a brain, about brains in general that, uh, that can be informative uh, to an individual human potentially down the road, regardless of, you know, their gender identity, regardless of their particular sex hormone, sex uh, genotype, other kinds of sex variable mediated mechanisms um, that have uniquely combined to create this particular person, regardless of, of where they sit on a sex or gender spectrum. Uh, but recognizing that the biological mechanisms of sex differentiation uh, can be one of the contributors there, you know. Um, so in, in, in trying to reduce this into something that has translational meaning as well as just presents itself as a, a kind of a beguiling tool, we have we have clinical cases that have clear sexual dimorphisms and involve executive function and decision-making and, and that's autism. So, so talk to us about, um, because I, I, I understand that, that it's, I thought at some level you were gonna say that, and you kind of did touch on the fact that it is a fraught thing to talk about performance as, an, as, a, as a single outcome, as a, as a measure, as sort of a, an endpoint measure of, of something behavioral. Um, but I think it's also interesting that you can resolve, you can, you can sort of decompose it into process also and kind of find a finer level of detail that then you can try to map onto something that the brain is doing in terms of process, the algorithm, the strategy, the, right? Yeah. So, so we, can go, we can go either way to autism first or then sort of how you kind of connect um, some of those, how, how, whether this has made it easier to approach sex also from some of these folkloric ideas of saying, well, this study finds that, you know, women are more explored or less exploratory, which implies, or males are more exploratory, which implies that women are less exploratory and in mice of all things, right? So, so uh, anyway, take it away, sorry. Right, no, 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 no. Um, well, so there's, there's a few things to unpack. So I do wanna talk about the, the our, our recent paper uh, that's about to come out in eight days, seven days, I can do math. Um, uh, it's gonna come out in Curve Biology where we describe, where we looked at uh, some male and female mice um, just, just wild type typical mice um, as they solved a two-armed bandit and found that uh, on average there were pretty strong tendencies for female mice to solve the task in a sort of like united similar way across females whereas males tended to solve the task a little bit differently from themselves each and every time it's sort of like more of a mishmash of strategies um, and exploration that ended up in this particular task with females learning the task more quickly and achieving higher levels of responding uh, more rapidly. So, um, do you think that a lot of these things, could you maybe describe the two-armed bandit a little bit, the, the task there, and if the learning you think is, you know, generalizable perhaps to, uh, or the results you have, to other sort of tasks that are looking at other elements of cognitive function? Yes. Um, but don't let me forget about the... the no, I'm piling it up on you. No, no, no. Uh, only because I, I want to... The... the the gender bias 
in autism is not as clear cut as it seems at first pass, um, which is something something important to lay down because it contextualizes the relevance of everything that we're doing here. But so the um, the tasks that we've been setting our mice are really exciting to me for a few reasons. And, and uh, what the lab has been largely working with are what's called bandit tasks. Um, bandit tasks are kind of probabilistic learning tasks that they're most fundamental. That is, there's two or more options. Each of them vary in their reward probability that, that reward probability can change independently or, or together with time. Um, the options can vary whether they're like divided by space or by uh, image identity or something else. Um, but what they have in common is that because of the randomization of certain aspects, so for instance, um, randomization of which location an image is presented on trial to trial, you can dissociate things like responding based on location from responding based on image. Because no option in a bandit task is rewarded every time, you can look at a response to the what happens after you respond to a given location or a given image, whether or not it's it's correct, it's more rewarding. Even you can look at the trials where it didn't happen to be rewarding that time. And likewise, you can look at the rewarding responses for the item, for the option that's not likely to be as rewarding in a, in a two choice, a two arm situation. Bandit tests are named uh, from the idea that a slot machine is a one arm bandit. Uh, so if you talk about a two-arm bandit, you're basically comparing two slot machines and you want to see which one is going to pay you off more frequently. Um, and so that sort of illustrates the problem nicely is that if you have two slot machines, how are you going to decide when to give up on this one and try the other one in this really simple world? Uh, if you have three, how do you decide whether you're, which one you're switching from, what, how you're exploring between your three options? Um, Solving these kinds of tasks is something that is of interest, not just to a mouse researcher like me, but to people working with uh, non-human primates, people working with humans uh, and artificial intelligence researchers. So uh, some of the conferences I've been able to start going to have had you know, that the much more computational focus and it's been a little bit mind blowing in that, in that way. Um, uh, so they're really useful for trying, for being able to dissociate uh, situations where holding this thing constant and all the other variables around them can, are allowed to vary uh, ran more or less randomly, uh, which is really good for driving clear neural signals down the road. I'm really good for being able to determine behavioral strategies. Um, and what we are able to do with the mice was find that, um, Compared to, uh, well, what the female mice ended up doing was uh, they preferred to simplify, it seemed like they were simplifying the task uh, to some extent. I don't think that this was on purpose, you know, I don't think the, the female mice are like, aha, I know what to do, although I can't be sure. Um, but they would just, uh, when they were presented with an uncertain combination of two images, they would just always choose whatever was displaying on one side. Every female had her own favorite side. Um, pretty evenly divided. We originally thought there might be a bias, but it turns out it's pretty evenly divided between whether or not they prefer right or left. Um, and it turns out if you do that, you'll just end up sampling both of the images in that situation. And eventually what they were able to do was then switch to responding to the more rewarded image. And in fact, switch to treating the task as an image-based task. The males were doing something a lot more complicated than that. But the one thing we know for sure is that they weren't in large part, although not exclusively, they were much less uh, likely to use that side bias strategy to help to sort of refine their uh, responses. And in fact, as far as we can tell, they were largely learning on some complex combination of space and uh, image location. And so something we haven't been able to fully figure out is like if they're learning the value of, you know, airplane picture on the left and airplane picture on the right separately, for example, as like two different things that they have to learn as opposed to sort of integrating them, generalizing airplane image, which it seems like is something the females were doing more quickly because of choosing to not explore in space um, as much. Um, 
So in terms of what that means for sex differences, um, uh, you know, it's really, it's really striking uh, to me that there are some males that were able to, to use some version of the female strategy, but as far as we could tell, uh, the females, there didn't seem to be a lot of females that were doing as much of what the, the males were doing or had that same level of variability. Um, but there's certainly room for, for that to be true. Um, but uh, yeah, but more than anything, it just uh, really revealed to us that this really simple task, two images that can just sort of vary in location, uh, and one pays off 80% of the time, and the other one pays off 20% at a time, that that alone is enough to totally explode the realm of possible response options. And that explosion of possible response options allowed us to see this relatively robust distinction and strategies that happen to separate in, in these mice according to, to sex in large part. Um, does that mean that sex is the only thing or the most important thing that might explode those strategies? Probably, maybe, maybe not. Does that mean that it would work the same way in humans? Well, they're probably not always going to assume that they're probably not going to assume that this is a spatial task early on, but it might give us important information about how humans are, are integrating information and choosing to obey different kinds of rules. It might give us the tools, the tools that we had to de develop to describe the strategies that the mice were doing computationally. It might give us the tools to understand the change in strategies that, uh, that might best describe, you know, somebody uh, with depression or with some subtype of depression, for example, or um, one of the reasons why I got really interested in this uh, might help us understand why there are differences in exploration seen on average uh, in people who are on the autism spectrum compared to neurotypical people. And that is one of the robust uh, bandit task findings that exists is that um, people who are on the autism spectrum uh, tend to uh, explore a lot in these kinds of decision-making tasks. So in trying to decide between these two bandit, two, uh, two arms, uh, they will explore for a lot longer than neurotypical people will. And there might be situations in which that is, uh, works out. And there might be situations where that's a lot more challenging, but I think it can reveal, as came up in the talk earlier and was really nicely put by Charlie, it can reveal a sort of algorithm that might be uh, really foundational to a lot of the different challenges that people on the autism spectrum face um, uh, and allow us to sort of get at it mechanistically in mice without assuming things about a mouse's social world, for example, or assuming things about uh, their preferred repetitive behaviors. Um, so that has led us to that interest. Um, uh, but with the caveat, so right, so bring it full circle. Uh, in trying to relate this work to autism, uh, the same kind of challenge, it seems like a similar challenge to me as trying to talk about sex differences. So something that I didn't get to say early on, but I, I meant to emphasize when it comes to sex differences is that there is a big, there's, there, if you look through the literature, the older decision-making literature, or even some of the newer stuff, uh, the assumption is that if you have a difference in decision-making behavior, it's because one group is better than the other, right? Like, so what do you do if it's a sex difference in behavior? Who's, who's better? How do you decide that? Um, it's arguable that neither is, is better and that that's not the right question to ask um, because there might be situations where one particular response strategy is, um, is going to lead to, you know, maybe better outcomes. There might be other situations or other kinds of um, uh, outcomes that you want to prioritize, and that's going to lead to better outcomes uh, for that particular set of strategies. And so my thinking about sex differences and wanting to be very careful that we don't assume that we know that we as scientists know the right answer just because we designed the task a certain way. Um, uh, also feeds into how I think about autism, wanting to make sure that we don't assume that we uh, know everything about what an animal should prioritize in this task. 
uh, and how they should solve it, given that they are telling us what they think of a strained situation. Um, and that I think gives me some empathy for trying to, or it, it, it leads into some empathy for trying to think about how we interpret uh, decision-making differences in, across humans, across human gender or across human psychiatric conditions to not assume that because we identify a difference, that difference is necessarily a problem. It might be a challenge. It might be part of a, of a deficit or something that we want to address. Um, but the onus is on us to make sure that we're not uh, pathologizing things, ahead, getting ahead of ourselves because otherwise you end up in a situation where for instance, Iowa gambling task, something I, I do not like, I do not like the Iowa gambling task, but there's a lot of Iowa gambling task papers you can find out there, or there's sufficient where, you know, women don't choose the particular deck of cards that the, that the task designers uh, decided was the most, is the most optimal. Um, and so they're like, well, obviously, you know, there's a problem with decision-making as opposed to looking at the kinds of sequences that are preferred and, uh, or the kinds of decks that are preferred and realizing that they're optimizing for a different solution, which might be to avoid frequent punishment. Um, as opposed I always to worry that I'm going to choose the wrong one of those gambling tasks. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I could actually figure it out. And I, I don't know. I'm afraid of actually testing myself to see if, it, if, if I would pick the optimal or non-optimal one. And does that mean anything? You're, I think you're right with that. Oh, but this is, to, oh, sorry. No, this is a difference between us is that when I do those tests, I'm like, and I don't choose what's optimal. I'm like, this is dumb. Like who decided that this is the optimal choice? Right. Right. It's optimal for me <laughs> because I do, I do feel like I feel the loss very um, acutely. And so like to lose something, I just, I'm, I, I hate that. So it's, I think to, for me, I would avoid those punishments much more than gain. I would, I would prefer to gain a little bit less and avoid the bigger punishments. <laughs> right. And so is that, is that economically? Yeah. No, but I don't think our brains evolved in, yeah. in economic systems, uh, we evolved in like foraging like environments where, uh, you know, avoiding big, avoiding losses of any kind to maintain a steady state has a particular value. Um, if there's a- hey, if, Have you been a subject in, in one of these tests or something? How do you know about this? The, those, oh no, just from talks. Like I've heard people give talks about these things. I'm always a little bit worried that I would always pick the wrong one. I would never figure yeah, out the you, optimal. You went to Iowa to gamble. I, I always went to Vegas. <laughs> I, I love going to Vegas. I find it extremely exciting, but I, I as soon as I start losing, I'm out. Like I, <laughs> the, weird, the weirdest thing though, is we always assume the simplest and most optimal strategy. Gambling is like famously not never the simplest. There's always this top down, you know, rubbing rabbit's feet. And I mean, there's, it, it's so fraught. It, you know, so why do we assume that the simplest strategies are going to be what is happening at the implementation level or do, or I guess we test for that. We have to test for it. No, no, I How do we know that? Oh, no, you highlight the problem perfectly, which is that uh, we design really simple tasks in the laboratory. Um, and then we set, in this case, we set them to the animal. Um, the animal doesn't know what the hell is going on or if it's a person, like, you know, they don't know what the rule is. And so there's nothing stopping them from, from assuming that the rule is more complicated. And in fact, it might be more complicated in, in a real life situation. So um, like, it's just like, of course, the simple strategy isn't going to always be the clearest one because because when you're in a real life gambling situation or um, the complex environment of the real world, that's not how it works. You know, assuming that uh, that an animal that's not following that super simple rule is is uh, is objectively non-optimal by an economic rule, but assuming that the economic rule is the most important one is, I think, ooh, not a great assumption. So what is the Iowa gambling task? Uh, it's a task. Um, it's a card-based task. Uh, like it comes from that sort of neuro neuropsych tradition as like card sword, uh, other other kinds of Midwestern card tasks, basically, um, where uh, you're trying to understand the influences of, of losses and gains basically on decisions. 
and uh, and so it's designed to sort of you know identify big differences in like let's say neuropsychiatric population, neuropsych population, so like patient population or neuropsychiatric compared to control. Um, or that's that's three four decks of cards. Um, uh, each one has some combination of rewards and punishments, uh, where the rewards, or excuse me, the punishments in particular are uh, conflated in and severity. So that is, there's frequent small punishments and there's large infrequent punishments, but they're never like, with infrequent small punishments is it really like as much of an option uh, or, or vice versa. Although you just frequent large punishments, and so the, the problem I have with the task is that if you have somebody who's avoiding, the optimal deck has a bunch of frequent small punishments in it. So you just have to be constantly be like, well, you know, gain 60 but lose 30 on this card, well, I gain 30. And you just have to constantly, ignoring the fact that you're losing every time you're and focused on the overall economic gain of that option. Whereas one of the decks that is in particular, it seems like it's like even a is this deck that has like really infrequent big losses. Do so you think you're doing great? And then it's like, boom, a big loss. And so in the long run, a hundred cards later, you'd be in a bad shape if you chose that deck. But who's who knows? Who, they don't know that. They're picking these decks in real time. So it seems like it's a great deck and it doesn't have a bunch of these little nonsense punishers that are going along the way in the, in the objectively good deck. So anyway, I ranted about it in a review piece that came out a couple years ago. <laughs> Me ranting about behavioral tasks, uh, uh, what Could you perhaps rant on a, another topic? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm curious, um, how can we study, and by we I mean you and the uh, scientists who are studying autism using preclinical models? Um, I mean, I know there's a, a number of models out there, and um, which one do you use? Which, why? And I mean, what are the what what are the challenges? I mean, that you we can have with having a good model. I mean, uh, yes, just go. <laughs> So by model, do you mean the mice or or the behavior or both? Or? Well, yeah, I think both are, you know, you know, how can we look at, you know, something that, you know, is is challenging, I think, to to be able to port down to mice, I think, in a, in a way. I mean, yes, they, there's a lot of social components that you find in, you know, autism spectrum disorder. That's one of the major things. But you know, we might not necessarily have a full repertoire or we can observe the full repertoire of social behaviors in rodents. And yes, I mean, you know, what model do you use? What behaviors are appropriate to look at? The, the, I mean, it, it's challenging and exciting at the same point to, you know, be at the, the forefront to be, you know, exploring these ideas. It, it is it is both challenging and uh, and exciting. Um, the The... The, the, I have a particular viewpoint on this, um, uh, although it's one that I think is shared by a variety of people talking, uh, you know, casually, you know, at conferences or things like that, um, that doesn't always come out in, uh, in the publication uh, record, although it's coming out more and more, um, which That's is that- That's why we're here for you to discuss these things off, off yet on the record. On the record, but uh, but without having to write a whole paper about it. So, a lot of the behavioral tasks that people sort of think of with regards to autism are are not I mean, in mice. And trying to model autism relevant behavior in mice have really big uh, construct validity and sort of computational challenges that are that make it really sort of uh, not great. And by not great, I mean both questionable about like what they're going to actually tell us about autism per se. And, uh, you know, when uh, one of the big autism meetings that, that happens uh, in the springtime uh, happens, you know, they tweet a lot about it. 
And you can read the tweets from people who are on the spectrum being like, what is this, you know, what does this behavior in this mouse have to do with my life? Zero. And the thing is, they're not wrong. Uh, they really aren't. That's, that's the truth, um, in, in my personal opinion. Um, so one of the big ones that I'll occasionally rant about um, is at the behavioral test that's used is marble bearing. Um, and the reason I rant about it is because uh, it's a really short, simple task. Uh, that is, you're putting a mouse in a cage, clean cage with some bedding and some marbles, and you're measuring what they bury. But it is not at all clear why they're doing it, what is the correct number of marbles to bury? Uh, what does this have to do? How does this relate to autism? And so, it's, and so you'd be like, well, it has to do with repetitive behavior uh, because they're burying them maybe because they're anxious, except mice also bury food, uh, you know? And as far as we can tell, by the way, it doesn't look they're intentionally burying the marbles at all. They're just digging and then the marbles happen to fall in. Um, that's true uh, across multiple labs. Um, it's a behavior sensitive to benzodiazepines, but so are a lot of things like they're, you know, just moving around less. Uh, as far as we can tell, is it validated maybe as a kind of test of anxiety in the same way that the four swim test was validated as a pharmacological test for antidepressants without having to do anything, having anything to do with depression like behavior. And yet we then you sort of conflate the two, like because this behavior leads to a change and is changed by this drug, Therefore, the behavior that is being changed must have to do with the psychological construct we sure want this drug to treat. Um, so that's not great. Um, the, the lack of clarity with marble bearing combined with the fact that it's just fall off a log easy to do um, means that it's, this, it, it's ripe for people who are doing really sophisticated molecular work to be like, and then the mouse that I've characterized, you know, this neuronal subpopulation six ways from Sunday had a deficit in marble bearing and I've solved autism, you know. Uh, so that's not great. The construct isn't clear. The test is, uh, the construct that is testing isn't clear the, at all on multiple levels. What is the mouse doing it? Why, do, what construct does it relate to? It's a truly messy task that I'm, I'm not doing justice here, um, but I'll do better. I'll do better justice in a, another tweet thread one of these days. Um, so, okay. So we say, well, no, no, no. That's because autism is a social uh, uh, disorder. Uh, it's primarily characterized by these social interaction challenges. And so you need to be measuring social behavior. This is where it gets a little more fraught, but, um, but I'm backed up by a huge file drawer effect. So uh, the, one of the really classic tasks that people have said, oh, okay, well, we need to measure social behavior and autism, uh, you know, mice carrying autism associated genetic variants. We're gonna do the three chamber social interaction task. Um, except that, uh, you know, Jackie Crawley who developed the task has said uh, that you're not supposed to compare a difference in the amount that they prefer. This, so in this test, you know, there's a mouse under one cup and an inanimate object in another cup. And then you're looking at what your test mouse is doing to investigate the inanimate object versus not. And as, if both your control and your putative autism genotype prefer to interact with, the, investigate the social mouse with the cup over the inanimate object, even if there's a difference in the total number of seconds, there's a social preference. And that's what Jackie always said. So that's the first problem is that it was interpreted as like, well, if there's a three second difference between how much they're sniffing the social cup, that's a social interaction deficit, which is, which is not true. Uh, you can't really say that. But more importantly, why would a male mouse investigate another male mouse trapped under a cup? It's not usually to be best friends. Um, <laughs> Uh, and it sort of underscores a messy secret with that task, which is that if you ask three different labs who that animal underneath the cup is, you'll get three different answers in terms of is it a is it a cage mate? Is it a is it a conspecific of the same age? Is it a different strain? That is that strain gonadectomized or not? Um, and I think can lead to a lot of differences there, but. 
more to the point when you look at the actual social behavior that people on the spectrum show, it's, it's not that they don't like to have friends or that they don't necessarily want to interact uh, with people, but they don't always want to interact with people in sort of the neurotypical ways. Um, uh, and they might have real challenges, you know, sort of both understanding subtleties of communication and, and wanting to communicate in the, the ways that neurotypical people uh, would prefer them to. Uh, you know, like verbalizing or uh, with, you know, not with combined with like complex nonverbal communication, like differences in tone and stuff like that. So, you know, this mouse choosing to investigate another mouse uh, was, uh, you know, originally it was sort of a big hit. It's like, oh, it's a way to measure social behavior, except then when we finally got well-validated genetic models, so like mice carrying genotypes associated with autism, most of them don't show deficits in that task. Um, and that's, that's uh, published as a news article, not as a, uh, not as a scientific publication, but the, the challenges with that uh, came out in like Spectrum like a couple years ago. Um, with a really depressing title, it's like, you know, can we ever study autism in mice? No, probably not, something like that. So, all right, so if we're going to try to understand anything about autism in mice, and we're going to attempt to do it with like a modicum of hope for translation and, uh, and uh, sophistication and, uh, you know, respect for the lived experience of people who are on the spectrum. We have to try to meet them where they're at, you know. And what, what do people on the autism spectrum report? Is there problems, anxiety, and executive function? They are anxious, off the walls, and that might have to do with, you know, the like some of the predictive impairment stuff I was talking about during my talk. That is, if the world seems less predictable, then yeah, it's going to be super anxiety provoking. Um, and it makes it also much harder to plan and focus. Um, and so that's really informed my research through my postdoc uh, was to try to look at executive function in particular. And, and ultimately it's what led me to thinking about decision-making and potential sex differences in strategies is that, um, you know, if there's a role for biological sex mechanisms beyond hormones into, you know, genetic sex, into the numerous mechanisms of early life by which, um, all those, all sexual differentiation is is having an influence. If there's a role on decision making as an aspect of executive function, that that might be something that we can really mechanistically access. It does not mean that's the only way anybody's ever gonna be able to to get at this in mice, but it does at least help me sleep at night that I'm not trying to, you know equate the social world of a mouse to the social world of a person. Um, and like I said, that doesn't mean that that would be possible to do, but, um, but for my very discrete goal, which is, you know, cross-species computationally validated approaches to trying to get at the same cognitive and computational constructs, algorithmic constructs across species, I need something that I can sort of point to and say like, okay, we at least, excuse me, ask the same question. We ask them, you know, what's the next decision you're gonna make after this sequel, this history of previous decisions and outcomes. Um, it doesn't mean that humans and animals are gonna solve that the same way. In fact, they almost certainly aren't, but it might help us to understand the mechanisms in the brain that would lead to a particular kind of decision after a particular kind of history. And that might translate, and that might also show room for sex we know and room for autism we think based on human and uh and non-human data big gamble <laughs> really long uh soliloquy but there you go yeah that was excellent <laughs> that's such a, it's such a great note to end on but i do want to ask you one more thing if you're not too exhausted um oh, and, let's <laughs> we'll, we'll limp through it let's see so I'm, I'm just wondering if the idea is, so I think I've heard 
David Reddish say that, uh, or maybe he says it about the DSM, not about autism, but that, it, that it's a, a set of symptoms, not a syndrome. You're, you've heard it too, <laughs> maybe. I, I do get to talk to yeah. him. Yeah, so, um, so <laughs> I, I, I wonder, in, and I know at some level that you know, you, you've defined your set, uh, your scale and your set of tools and, and you're sort of thinking of it in a, in a particular way. But do you imagine that this is just a, a bunch of different insults that all sort of land on maybe different architectures, different hormones, different proteins being expressed. Because you know, we a lot of this stuff is you know we we're talking about genes and, and and genetic loci, but ultimately genes code proteins. And um, you know, I, I just don't know. I don't I don't know how you get from protein for, from proteins to like decision making, right? So so is it, there just this idea that irrespective of whatever you know the biological substrate, the architecture, whatever you want to call it is, um, that there's some solution in the implementation of whatever's happening that through that you can manipulate pharmacologically. That's the other thing is that psychiatry is ultimately, I mean, what are the tools of psychiatry? They're drugs and maybe ECT and maybe some behavioral, I guess, shaping, some sort of learning type thing. But, um, and I don't, and, or enrichment, I guess. I don't know what, what the clinical interventions for autism are. So I, 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 maybe you can even tell us. So what is the kind of, what is the, what is the sort of black box that separates those things in terms of, are we, do you, do you think that it's somebody else's job to get at the architectures? Are you interested in the architectures? Or you really think that this is just happening at a level that's beyond um, circuits, for example, or neurons or, you know, protein, you know, that level of protein. So, okay. Yeah. So no, it's a great question. Um, people originally thought, you know, when we started to, to get genomes that the solution to all of our psychiatric diseases were going to be genetic, um, that we were going to find genes and those genes were all going to have a common mechanism. And then we've done it. And at least for, you know, where we're at now for autism, you know, there's a lot of different genetic factors and they don't all have a common mechanism. There may be, you know, three to four mechanistic themes, but they basically go everywhere from, well, the synapse, but also the nucleus, uh, which is, which is not particularly helpful. So, uh, so that, where does that leave you? Well, so given that we have this sort of behavioral thread that we can draw, behavioral cognitive thread that we can draw across species, um, through like decision-making, let's say, how do you get from these genotypes to that risk or, you know, to differences in, in cognition? Uh, so I am interested in that. And so one thing you might think is, well, there's going to be a um, circuit level convergence, um, which is something I'm sort of currently writing grants about now. And not that I think that it's going to be that simple, but because that's the sort of parsimonious place to start, right? Is that there could be a circuit level convergence that you could test multiple different genotypes, um, uh, either at the sort of macro circuit, like within a region. So like within the striatum, you know, D1, D2, or for the, the other grant that I have within the prefrontal cortex, the, uh, you know, synaptic, uh, the activity, uh, correlation, uh, coactivation of multiple neurons within the PFC when animals are making decisions, blah, blah, blah. Um, but, uh, you know, there's really interesting ways that you could think about uh, neurodevelopmental mechanisms as being able to play a role in how these decision-making systems uh, function. And so just as like a sort of like teaser note, like some of this stuff is is just coming out now, but um, I was just discussing with some colleagues earlier this week, this really interesting preprint from, from Zhao Zheng Wang's group at NYU, where, you know, it, the paper is mostly modeling, but they start by saying, well, you know, let's look at the expression of uh, E1 receptor across cortex in, in primate. And what they find is that more or less, um, you know, cortex, you know, cortex, visual cortex, frontal cortex, parietal cortex, you know, you think it's all the same, but in fact, there's a really sort of 
overt uh, anterior posterior gradient in the density of D1 receptors in cortex as a function of, of sort of like lowest in V1 and uh, sort of hindbrain up through highest in frontal and some parietal regions. And that lends itself directly to a neurodevelopmental mechanism because then you say, well, we know a lot just from developmental biology about how uh, things like anterior posterior gradients are gonna get laid down. Um, then it's no longer a mystery. And what they were able to show in that paper or what they did is then they modeled a brain that had a really simple, you know, two pyramidal neuron cortical region across all these regions and found that the ability to, for this uh, complex biophysical model to maintain working memory is what they had the model work on, um, was dependent on a sort of optimal dopamine release or optimal, optimal dopamine availability. And they were able to replicate an inverted U function for a dopamine release in this model as a function of just uh, adding the different sensitivity of different regions front to back to, uh, to dopamine. So uh, that's really potentially exciting because they didn't talk about this in the paper. They don't, they're, you know, modelers, they're not developmental biologists, but uh, but it does suggest, okay, so this one thing that might be happening is you need to regulate how pyramidal neurons are sensitive to dopamine. You might also need to then use those same mechanisms to um, regulate some of those same molecular mechanisms might be involved in the striatum regulating how they're expressing their receptors. One thing we know in one of the mouse models I really like to work with is that there seems to be potentially, at least in early life, an increase in double label D1 and D2 uh, neurons, not a huge number, but way more than you would, than you see in wild type. We don't know if it persists into adulthood, but um, but uh, we have some evidence that is not inconsistent with that idea, I guess. So you can begin to draw a line from like, okay, you have a molecular problem. It's going to cause some difference in the development of these circuits, and the common me circuit mechanism might be not that this brain area always bad or always goes down or isn't working right, but that the really complex interplay between these regions is, um, is being tweaked at a, at a molecular level, but at a molecular level that's sensitive to where you are in the brain uh, by these uh, neurodevelopmental mechanisms. And then that leads to a circuit that then uh, we can model and say like, actually this model doesn't quite uh, solve the task as normally. So that's a, that's a big, big job, which is partially why we have the, the P50 is because there's pieces of that all. And that one's particularly focused on psychosis, but some, there's some shared mechanisms there, including uh, shared genetic models. Most, most genetic models of autism could also be argued as genetic models of psychosis um, on some level. Uh, which is a podcast for another time. Yeah, <laughs> it's counterintuitive. Thank you for staying over time with us. I realize we've gone a few minutes over and this is really just lots of fun. I feel like we could just keep throwing stuff at you, but we'll, <laughs> we'll give you some relief. Um, but thank you for joining us, Nicola Grissom. Uh, this has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you, everyone. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Have a wonderful evening.